Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, predictably, is bouncing off the walls today because one of her favourite people has come to join us. Alina, who's here? So we have with us Tim Reynolds, who's a senior lecturer in archaeology at Birkbeck University of London. And of course, he is a former lecturer of mine. He taught me all I need to know and exactly how to be an archaeologist. So sorry if I mess up, it's all Tim's fault. Um, He's got way too many publications to list, so we're going to skip that. And he specialises in Neanderthals and the modern human, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. It's exciting. Hi, Tim. Hello. Hi, then. Right. Okay. Alina. You know Tim well. What's this about a Mary Beard exam question? So I did my my first my first uh, course was with Tim, and he taught his methods and practice in archaeology. And it's not easy. I'm just warning you guys, it's not easy. And um, the night before the exam, I went and watched Mary Beard's Pompeii uh, thing on TV. And I managed to answer like half the questions in the exam, sorry, Tim, um, on this one episode. And I actually got a really good mark. So I'm quite excited. Sorry, Tim, now you know my dirty little secret. <laughs> it yeah. just proves that Mary's awesome. She is indeed, yeah. But make us all redundant, but be careful. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. She works very, very hard. Um, so Matt Pope came on a couple of weeks ago and talked all about Neanderthals and now you're here to talk to us about um, modern humans from the prehistoric era. Can you just briefly tell our listeners why they're different things? Right well they're completely different species okay uh, currently as 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 we define things although that that may change Uh, in in the old days when we we were growing up if two individuals could interbreed and produce viable offspring they were the same species. fossil species that's different particularly when they're closely related so neanderthals are a different species at the moment but it seems that because we picked up neanderthal genes we can actually interbreed with them so we need to be thinking i mean there is a debate going on about what now constitutes a species so So is this like when so when we talk about early humans just so our listeners understand it's like when you're looking at apes and you can say well they're all apes but that's a chimpanzee and that's a different ape and so it's kind of like that isn't it so they're all humans but they're all distinct species from each other yeah that's um, that's the thing when when you're looking at species that are so closely linked then you always get these issues where do you actually end up drawing the line um, some, with all the work on DNA now, some people have even argued that in fact we're so little different that we should actually have include chimps as, as part of our own, own lineage, that we are, you know, if you like, uh, just a variation on a chimp theme, which I don't agree with, I have to say. I like to say I'm, I'm a bit like a monkey sometimes. I don't know about you, Alex. <laughs> You're like a monkey all the time. I jump off the walls like you said earlier, that is what I do. 
whatever. Monkeys are cool. <laughs> I love them. I went and hung out with gorillas in December in Rwanda and Uganda, and they were epic. That kind of sounds exciting. I've got to go and do that. It was brilliant. It just like even they're so like us. It was just brutal. It was just like the little hands. Exactly there you the same go, Tim. Tim, your whole research has just been debunked by Alex because she said <laughs> that they're just like us. Sorry. Alex, stop with these gorillas. Let's go back to modern humans, right? So, Tim, when did the first modern humans appear on the map? Right. Well, recently we've discovered that we are almost twice as old as we thought. Um, the oldest now we have for modern humans is about 330,000 years ago, a site called Jebel Ehud up in Morocco in North Africa. Do you know, I was reading about that and I can't believe that we can pinpoint something so unique. Well, that's because they actually, they've actually got the fossils from that particular cave. I mean, so given that they're there 330,000 years ago, you, there should be just like a tail going further back, 360, you know, maybe even 400, to when the, you know, the species actually comes into being. So what we have is we have dated sites and particular places, but you know, the, the picture is always going to be much more fuzzy than that. You know, we're dealing with sort of evolutionary and geological time. It's so when I say 330,000 years ago, you know, Saturday afternoon, three o'clock, it's not that sort of detail. We, we don't have that kind of detail. But what that did do is add, basically, we thought before that, we only dated back 180,000 years. So it, a huge lump of time. And it begs the question, well, well, where are the other guys? Where, where are the rest of the modern humans between 180,000 and 330,000? You know, we just haven't found them yet. For that reason, there's massive debate, isn't there, about um, where early modern humans come from? And what kind of evidence is there? Well, there's three different sorts of evidence. Really. The, the, the best evidence at the moment is basically the, the fossil record itself. Uh, and when you get back as far as you know, 330,000, they're like us, but they're still different. They're enough like us to be classified with us, and they're different enough from other things to be not with us. But you know, that, that's what we've got. You know, the skulls are as close as, as, as much as we can get to being us. The other evidence is DNA, but DNA doesn't preserve very well. And in the, the key place we really need to be chewing in, into the DNA evidence, of course, is, is in Africa. And you know, so we need more DNA from Africa to identify what fossils should be placed where. And then the third source of evidence is probably the worst sort of evidence really, which is the archaeology. I hate to say this as an archaeologist, but archaeologists tend to think that different species make different tools. And therefore, if you find one sort of tool, that must mean, uh, you know, that's the species you get with it. So hand axes, we used to think were Homo erectus, whereas in fact now we know that modern humans, Neanderthals, all sorts of creatures made hand axes. So the archaeology is the weakest evidence. The DNA is the hardest to pin down. So fossils are our main evidence. Was that average lifespan like us i mean what do we live to most of us who are 80 90 years old if i'm not mistaken someone's going to correct me that i'm completely if wrong but... <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be less than that isn't that that far back without medicine and, and it's, personal it's hard care. to say because you know for individuals to end up in the fossil record they are by them by by the just the nature of the evidence they're they're unusual because you know most most bodies just rot away and, and never get fossilized Given what we have, though, I mean, 40 plus is certainly, you know, a, a, lot, of a lot of fossils and, and things we have seem to be getting on to that sort of age, 40,000. Uh, sorry, 40 years, that would be old, 40,000. Yeah. 
40, 40 plus. That's, that's getting into Mary Berry territory. Huh? <laughs> I'm sure she's right? Oh, I love her. I love her. <laughs> yeah, so, but the, I mean, the biggest risk, you know, a lot of child mortality, a lot of infant mortality, uh, uh, women dying in childbirth, and lots of accidents. And of course, infectious disease, you know, before antibiotics, even modern humans died very rapidly of, of all sorts of things we take for granted now is, is not important. But if you made it to sort of 40, the odds are making it to 50 was quite possible and maybe 60 and beyond as well. So on average, we can say, yeah, the lifespan sort of 40 to 40 to 50, 40 to 60. But it depends on, on your individual life history as to where you, you fall out of that like, in, in terms of when you actually die. You talked about them making things like axes and stuff. What can you tell about their behaviour from the evidence you have? Is it comparable to ours? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, well, if we're talking about modern humans, I mean, they are essentially us, but earlier versions of it. What you see is you know, the, the thing that makes us special is the fact that we aren't easily categorised and, and put in a box. We do lots of different things. We're incredibly flexible and very versatile with what we do. So when you look at the sort of tombstone technologies of the period when we are just emerging, uh, what you see in the stone technologies is a standardized way of making things that then can be applied to any situation. So they're, they're organizing themselves so that the stone tools can be used. You know, if you want to butcher an animal, you've got sharp knives, you can get on and do that. But equally, you can use the same sorts of technology to process plants. And you can also apply hunting technology to different sized game and so on. So it's flexibility that's the key to it. But you know, points and scrapers and blades and so on, they all are being made. It used to be so I'm sorry if I'm talking too fast, but I'm telling you to slow down if I'm, I'm too fast. No, no, it's great. We're both really excited. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Um, it's, it used to be thought, you know, modern humans were all about making blades. But you know, blades come in in different places at different times. They're used by different species. See, so Time Team has done that to people, hasn't it? Because every time they do prehistory, they're looking for a pointy bit of rock. <laughs> harsh but probably true <laughs> yeah I, well the, the thing is we as archaeologists we need to be able to sort of categorize materials we need a language the basic language to define our tools and things so we can know what we're talking about but the danger is then the meaning we put on top of that so you know hand axes homo erectus scrapers neanderthals blades modern humans it worked for a while you know it worked for a while but now we can look you know, worldwide, uh, sort of the nature of variability, and it, it doesn't work anymore. There's a trend towards much more uh, blade use and so on with modern humans, and microlithic use and so on too. But you know, it's it's never simple. You always need to look at the context in which the evidence is is, is being brought up. My next question is going to be. So I love this. Um, so I'm really fascinated, um, and as and Linda as well. I know Linda, you're listening. With um, religion and burial methods i mean do we know if they practice anything of the sort wow right that's that's very timely because um the team i work with just published a paper uh, this couple of months ago now on prehistoric burial particularly looking at neanderthals oh, wow. uh, and, and i know i don't want to spend too much time on neanderthals because i know you've already covered them but we would been working at the site of shanidar in iraq and we've discovered Another, well, it may be another Neanderthal, it may be one that was already partly found before. And at that site, they claimed they were buried with flowers. You know, and Neanderthals came along and they, they buried a series of individuals in exactly the same spot, within two meters, you know, exactly the same spot. 
in a cave that's you know, a thousand square meters in area, they come to the, exactly the same spot and burying individuals at different times. So there's obviously something means a lot to them to be coming there and burying their, their but in interring, very you know, sometimes we need to be careful about the language you use that you know the bodies are being disposed of in the ground, as it were. You know, it just scoops out and then they're being buried, you know, earth being thrown over the top. There's an argument about whether they were buried with flowers based on the pollen. And the jury on that one is is still out. Although I'm, I tend to believe that in fact, first of all, when I went to work at the site, I thought, no, yeah, it can't be true, you know, flower burials and so on. Um Increasingly, the evidence to me looks like perhaps they actually were burying Neanderthals with flowers. So again, what does that mean? Um, we don't know. But we have a lot of, relatively, a lot of Neanderthal fossils compared to their contemporary modern humans. So when we think about, did modern humans bury their dead? We, I mean, we certainly do. And if we trace that further and further back, you think about the Neolithic, you get ritual monuments where some people are being buried. And that's the other thing, of course, it's not everybody is being buried, it's just some people. So, you know, what's the significance of that? Are you looking at, you know, key individuals, important figures? Are you looking at hierarchy? All these sorts of things could be considered. But Neanderthals seem to be burying their dead in a way that's more visible in the archaeological record than modern humans are at the same time. So there's lots of questions that link to that. You know, what does that mean about religious beliefs, their intelligence, their sort of do they have belief in the afterlife? Are they just getting rid of something that's going to get very smelly and attract a lot of predators? You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. All of these things are, are something that, you know, we need to um, take into account. But it does look like Neanderthals are doing things that, if it was us, we would say were pretty clever. That's brilliant. I just, I love the nuances of it. It's great. Um, talk about eating. Do you, so we talked to Matt about, what Neanderthals were eating and that is is it the same or if you what evidence have you got about to, I mean Alina's put how did they eat I'm like well they put it in their mouth Alina but I, I'm sure she <laughs> meant something else by that question when she wrote it but yeah so so what do we know about um, them eating right well it, again one of the, the old cliches used to be that modern humans were smarter and cleverer and could eat a whole a wide range of species that Neanderthals were not able to collect. But equally, that modern humans could also be very specialist and focus down on particular species and hit them particularly hard when they're in season. So salmon runs or reindeer when they're migrating and so on. Now, again, it's, it's difficult. The record is always biased against plant eating because of course, you know, the plants don't preserve very well. But they seem to be eating the, you know, the same ranges of species, but modern humans hit coastal resources, you know, shellfish, um, soon, sooner than, than, than you know, before Neanderthals seem to be doing it. Uh, the evidence for Neanderthals is a bit equivocal. Um, fish, uh, birds, rabbits, you know, small, small, furry, fluffy things. You know, they're eating a whole range of things. Uh, tortoises. You know, they're, 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 they're snacking a pack. You know, you basically just turn one upside down. It can't go away. You can come back and stick it on the fire whenever you feel like it. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I can't get over that image in my mind. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. So they can eat, you know, a whole range of different, you know, animal species. And the technologies for that, they, they seem to be using things like traps. At one site I worked at in Borneo, 
they seem to be eating things like catfish, which live in the bottom of, of muddy streams, but they don't seem to have sort of the nets and things to catch them. What, how are they getting them? This is the big question. Well, we found these big, big pits with starch grains in them from plants which are poisonous, new taro, things like these ground storage root um, vegetables, which you have to soak and dry, soak and dry, pound, and then they make flour and then you could eat them. But that produces a lot of toxins in water. So if you took that water and then throw it into the river, basically the, the, the catfish are poisoned, they could just float up to the surface and you've got you know, fish from, from that means as well. So we think they may actually be doing that you know, 40 or thousand years ago in, in Borneo. That's really so it's a, smart. It's, yeah, it's incredibly smart. I mean, it's one of those things I always you, you ponder. Who was the first person who discovered that you can eat this thing, but only if you pound it and soak it and pound it and soak it? I mean, what... Someone you know, who didn't like their mother-in-law and was desperate. <laughs> how important <laughs> it would be, you know? Yeah. yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can I ask a really tangential question and just go off on one? No. <laughs> No, I want to. Cannibalism. So obviously, like, to us now, it just it's unacceptable to eat your own species. But what about back then? Is there any evidence of it? I don't know why this interests me, but it does. I mean, is it because it's just a survival thing, isn't it? If the Do you want to eat me? Is this what it is? You're planning on eating me or something? Possibly. I'm just trying to think how I'd cook you now, but that's really going off on a tangent. No, but I'm just interested, back then, do you see evidence of like a practicality in that perhaps there was meat available if someone died and they were fresh, so they ate it? I just, I'm interested. Well, the evidence from a couple of sites suggests that Neanderthals might have done. Um, the evidence from modern humans is more equivocal at the same sort of stage. Uh-huh. Um, the times in which they're living could have been actually, you know, with, with harsh ice ages, long yeah. hot winters and so on. The amount of protein there might not be very much. So the idea of you know, granny's looking a bit past it anyway, just, you know, she can spare a limb, might actually... But I'm just thinking of that. If somebody died, you can just then reprocess them. But yeah, I just, of... that's what I'm thinking. It's just like a practical sort of solution. If they're, I mean... Granny could feed you for a few days. I, I don't know. <laughs> oh my god, Alex! I'm sitting here laughing. I just want to know if it's something—the idea that we don't eat each other—is something that's evolved over a long, long time. Is what I'm asking. I don't know why I've suddenly become really interested in this, but I, whether it's a very modern concept or whether we can see evidence of it not being acceptable that long ago. It's it's one of those things that you know the evidence, the argument is always always out on. 
you know, if, if you want to sort of diss the neighbours, you always say, oh, they're cannibals. So a lot of the, a lot of the historical accounts of cannibalism, when you investigate them, are actually basically people just dissing their next door neighbours. Oh, we've so had when, that on History Hack before. The first thing people accuse each other of is eating babies in yeah, all periods of history. That's right. Yeah, indeed. You know, mm. And when there were problems with... Um, with in sort of the early postmodern period with sort of Ireland and England and, and battles, the Irish were dismissed as, oh yeah, they eat, you know, they're cannibals and they're, it's trying to create something that is, is different and other and, and, and nasty and, and horrible. So it's just one of those things you throw at people. But at the same time, cannibalism, if it's a way of processing war dead or, or capturing the powers of individuals or just humiliating individuals, um, is something that modern humans have practiced how far back that goes we just don't know thank you for indulging that <laughs> you're welcome well, <laughs> it just suddenly occurred to me and i was really interested too. you know if you if you want to look outside our species you know chimpanzees have been known to do it too oh really yeah they actually hunt and kill um usually younger males on of other other um chimpanzee packs not oh that's like two birds with one stone isn't it taking out like potentially future dominant males in opposing groups and yeah. getting dinner at the same time oh my yeah. god <laughs> no, it's so gorillas is like it's um, my numbers i haven't this was six months ago but gorillas are like 98 percent the same but what are we like 95 <coughs> percent the same as chimpanzees it's it's it gorillas are less close than the chimpanzees are oh close. so it's the other way around yeah okay right. but um, to be <laughs> honest yeah we can get a bit over enthusiastic with the with the, the biochemistry as it were so you know there are people who say that we are actually so close to the chimps that we should be called chimps well i think those are guys who just don't get out enough you know too yeah, much time in the lab. that's like i need to write an article for a journal and i need to say something epic i'm gonna go with this is that <laughs> right have i just made an enemy of all the uh, chimp loving archaeologists archaeologists right okay let's get back onto alina's questions because they are really good and i've just waffled on about something <laughs> really now alina would like to know about living space is there archaeological evidence for where they live are they nomadic do they move around or do we see homes ah, home is where the heart is and we don't know what they thought um it's there are sites where people are clearly living longish periods um, it's been argued that Neanderthals tended to move as a group en masse around the landscape and exploit animals as they go and plants as they go, whereas modern humans tended to be more organised. They would place groups in areas where resources are, are, are good and local and then send out, send out work parties to actually you know, do a bit of hunting, bring stuff back and provision the idea. The idea of it's like a home base, you know, where everyone can be and you send out work parties and so on. So modern humans' sites tend to be, they tend to be more of them. Um, they tend to be larger, more diverse in terms of their contents and, and what they, they, they construct. There seem to be some evidence for, for structures, um, but, you know, not substantial housing, but, you know, tents and, and so on. And different organisations are tasked in different places. So there'd be napping areas, hearth areas, sleeping areas, and so on. But, you know, they they define their space by what they do around them. I mean, one of the guys in the group we were talking about burials suggests that Neanderthals basically worked around them. So basically their, their living space was what was around them within reach and so on. Whereas modern humans tend to, to co cooperate more, sit around and work together more. 
so it's sort of like a social, a social space, the sense of social space was different between Neanderthals and, and modern humans as well. So it's a complex thing because, because modern humans, what are we talking about? Are we talking about these guys 330,000 years ago where we have virtually no evidence? Or are we talking about them 40,000, 30,000 years ago where we have increasing amounts of evidence? But they do seem to be much more organized technologically and things. They're moving materials across the landscape more. So they're moving a lot of raw materials, exotic raw materials and things like this around the landscape more too. So they're, they're logistically organized, they're out and about, but it's work parties. So different groups of people who then come back to the main group uh, seem to be the way they seem to be organized. Can I throw something in here? Yep. I'm gonna Sounds throw... worried now. He's like, is it going to be weirder <laughs> than the cannibal stuff? <laughs> no, no. I, I don't want to start a whole debate about it because I think it's a whole podcast in itself completely a podcast in itself but tim took us around um some old stuff when we were at uni <laughs> the technical term um i can't remember exactly where we went we went with to a place that had sticks in the ground and um <laughs> some sort of no don't, don't laugh at me well, really no, we've done this, this before and we usually come to the conclusion that you were at woodhenge that's the one woodhenge thank you thank you i forgot what it was called um but i wanted to throw i wanted to throw in here um a bit of stonehenge because you just triggered my mind and saying oh they moved materials around there we go stonehenge if you want to hit us with one line maybe two lines about it because we'd love to come and do another podcast about stonehenge in itself well stonehenge is obviously much 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 later um and different economies and so on but interesting about stonehenge is it it's been suggested that not only did they move the stones, the, the blue stones from, from Wales, but they actually all moved them in order of, that reflected the geology of the um, mountains they came from, the Priscilla Hills. So they're, they're different types of blue stone and they were actually transferred and, and ordered according to the geology of where they came from. So not only are they moving things vast distances, but they've, they know their stones, they know which stone is which and what order they should all be going in and then they recycle them so there's there's blue stone hens that's over you know, down towards the river which then gets recycled as they you know, rework and rebuild uh, one of the phases of stonehenge the later stages in that stonehenge okay so in my mind again you're gonna laugh at me in my mind i've got this image of early humans either running around completely naked <laughs> or with some sort of loincloth wrapped around their bits parts um, <laughs> do we know if they actually wore any clothing at all and is there any evidence of it ah good question there's evidence for weaving um and 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 some textiles that dates back sort of uh, towards about thirty thousand years ago so the odds are they were you know they were certainly making using string and woven the things it's a short step from making woven things like you know, nets and things to catch animals to, to tying things up to yourself and wrapping them around you. Um, the odds are they also were wearing skins and hides and so on. So I, I think it's they're almost certain. I don't know, you know if you, you fancy going sort of standing completely naked in the middle of winter in Britain. You know, these guys are living through ice ages where conditions were much, much harsher. It's not impossible. I mean, when um, they discovered the Tierra del Fuegans in the bottom of South America, they had horrendous cold, wet, damp conditions and people were running around virtually naked there. So we have a great ability to adjust to conditions, but allowing for that, 
I, sus I suspect that actually they were wearing clothes. And in fact, we have a very bizarre line of evidence in terms of the DNA of body lice and hair lice, because um, you can see how they've evolved. And um, they've evolved hand in hand with our bodies and the fact that we cover them up so that they're protected and they can, so they can speciate and things on the new conditions of people wearing clothes. It's a nice thought to end on. <laughs> <laughs> How are your lice? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Uh, arts. Do they practice uh, music maybe harder to discover than things like cave art or are they amusing themselves as well as just trying to survive <laughs> and not freeze to death? Uh, very much so. I mean, I think they actually had quite a, a rich social life. I mean, what else do you do in those yeah, dark rooms? Better than us now, anyway. <laughs> you know, well, imagine what you know, we're sort of partitioned and under lockdown in very small groups. They were pretty, but we have you know, media to get out through. They would be in large groups in, in, in confined spaces for long periods of time over winter and so on. What do you do to amuse the kids? What do you do to sort of keep people happy and engaged and so on? You, you, you'd sing, you perform. And if you look at modern humans, they have large hearts, people, their centres, their focal points, you know, for performance and, and so on. So you can well imagine people sort of singing around the campfire. You can imagine it, but how do you find physical evidence for it? And archaeologically, of course, you know, we have large campfires, but that's all we have. We don't have, you know, any any of those things there are some things that have been claimed to be musical instruments you know bird bones with piercings through them so they could use them as, as flutes and so on uh, but again a lot of musical instruments are made from organic you know uh, com composition materials and so they waste away but i would say it's almost certain that they were using musical instruments and things and art well you know, art in various forms however you interpret the record could go back over 200,000 years in Southeast Asia. Um, Neanderthals it now seems were making art 67,000 years ago in Spain painting caves and doing a, a sort of noughts and crosses board engraved in the cave at, um, in, in, in Gibraltar. So Neanderthals were doing it. it Maybe we actually learned it from them but we certainly were doing it too but again not everywhere. Not every, every society is doing all these things all at the same time. It's very easy to become sort of stereotype. All modern humans were like this. But, you know, people are variable. People are different. And cultures are emerging through these times and isolating and you know, defining themselves differently. Tim, you have done some just amazing excavations. Um, we all know this from being in your lectures. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, do go to Birkbeck if you want to study archaeology. Tim is a fantastic <laughs> lecturer. Um, and you've gone literally around the world doing your excavations. Can you tell us what is the most interesting thing you have ever found on an excavation? Ah, well, this is, this is if, if you like, this is my life cycle. When I was a, a teenager, uh, <laughs> that's a long time ago, back in the 70s, there was a Scientific American came out about the Shanidar Neanderthals. You know, and that's one of the things that got me into archaeology in the first place. And now, amazingly, I am actually digging the Shanidar Neanderthals with, with a great team. Uh, and so to excavate the last two, three years, we've had the skull, mandible, shoulders, hat, one hand, uh, ribs and back of a Neanderthal is just the most awesome thing. It just really brings these people together. And it's been a, a, you know, a lifelong interest. So for me, digging Shanidar is just like the best. <laughs> it doesn't get much better. Dreams come true, right? Eventually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never dreamt everything like that. 
you know, gawky teenage kid, you could see me, and you think, bloody hell, how's that? It's like, pardon, you know. You know. <laughs> What's the best thing that's come out of it so far? Well, have, actually having the physical remains of a Neanderthal. They yeah. are still incredibly rare. So to have, I mean, and also to have the iconic bit, you know, the skull and the jaw, the teeth, you know, the, the head of a human being is always a significant thing, you know, <laughs> think of a head cults and all the rest of it. So to have a Neanderthal skull there in the ground and seeing it painstakingly excavated and removed. And we had a, a, a brilliant um, you know, human bones person who lifted it, it took forever to do, to, you know, conserve it and treat it so he could lift it. And she did an amazing job. And, you know, to, to have that there, I mean, it's just fantastic. That's I could have seen the look on your face in my mind right now, you know, <laughs> finding it and then going, oh, my God, it's coming out of the ground. This is so exciting. Sorry. <laughs> it is. I mean, well, that, that's, you know, I wouldn't say we're all treasure hunters at heart, but we all, you know, that joy, the excitement of discovering something and being the first person or one of the first people to engage with that after all these thousands of years. I mean, at least that's the romance of archaeology still. It's still a fantastic thing to be doing. Real privilege. That's why Alex and I have to go and do some more because I haven't done any digging, gosh, in about three years now. So don't don't hold that against me. But I'm trying to convince Alex for us to go and do some really cool stuff. And we're trying to jump on, you know, and look at what people are digging and do our own little chime team, right, Alex? Boom. Pointy rocks all round. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my brother's one pet peeve of being made to sit through this on a Sunday evening back in the day was that he'd have to sit through it for an hour and they'd find nothing but a bit of flint and tell you that it had been worked into a pointy object of some description by someone a very long time ago and that he felt cheated at having spent an hour on it. But it says more about my brother than it does about archaeologists. Um, let's finish with, so we talked about what you have found. Mm. Is there something you would like to find that would answer a burning question that you have? What would be your dream find? <laughs> it probably doesn't exist, but a, a mixed cemetery with Neanderthal and modern human bodies buried together with organic preservation. I mean, <laughs> it's the ultimate fantasy. And it, you know, and grave of, goods and stuff. Yeah, the whole shebang. <laughs> answers everything all in one. You know, we can all give, retire then. You know. Is this something that's contentious, how much they intermingled with each other? Exactly, yeah. I mean, they did interbreed, but on what terms and, you know, all those sorts of issues and how frequently and when and where and so on. Yeah, and you know, reconstructions, the recent, recon, well, relatively recent reconstructions of the Endertal, uh, the Natural History Museum, for example, had them with tattoos. You know, oh, wow. Answer, but did they? So just answering those sorts of questions, what did they look like? We know that you know, some of them had red hair, you know, so bring up the humanity of it what we have are dry stones and bones it's our job to sort of put flesh on them but it'd make our lives an awful lot easier if they came with flesh attached and we could actually say wow okay yeah we're actually right or we're up we're not right you know so yeah that would be fantastic to have all everything you ever wanted sat there on one side hugely expensive and you'd you know, how do you preserve all the dead bodies and stuff but wow what a sort of thing to have who cares we'll crowdfund it <laughs> you yeah, find it we'll crowdfund it exactly come to us and we'll get it all sorted for you Not a i remember that i'm pretty sure everyone would work for free on that site if you found it anyway oh god yes oh god do you know what i'm i'm thinking about um how you said about this the cemetery or cemetery you know inverted commas um but how are people going to view us in hundreds and thousands of years now the way we live you know 
oh look I just found this uh, sort of thing with uh, buttons on it you know telephone or you know what 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 did we look like it's, it's just really interesting looking back so far to think what are people going to look at us like in the future yeah, I, you know, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there was that joke about you know the shoe layer where the, all these people had had shoes that built up and built up. Uh, who knows? To be honest, I suspect you know hundreds of thousands of years from now, uh, it, it's debatable whether or not we will be here. You know, um, we face many many challenges at the moment. I think we're ingenious. I think a variation on the theme of us will be here, but whether they will do archaeology and whether they'll be interested in the past, they may actually look back at the past and think. Thanks, guys. You really once you got us into this mess. Look at the, you know, look at the plastic layer. Look at the, you know, the you know, lack of biodiversity. Look at the mess you made. <laughs> so it's always good to have someone to blame. So you know, who knows what um, people many many years hence would, would would say about us? But archaeologically, we've certainly left a huge huge imprint on the on the planet. They'll find you, Tim, with uh, with your trowel and your paintbrush. <laughs> Surrounded <laughs> in plastic, yeah. <laughs> Tim that was so awesome to have you back on and have you chatting to us about the modern human talking to us about just the incredible amount of evidence because I didn't realize how much actual evidence there really was I'm really sorry for being so ignorant but it is just great thank you so much for joining us you're welcome it was fun Join us tomorrow when Nick Ramos returns to talk all about Cuban history. He covered it for us before and he went up to the 20th century. Now we're getting into the good stuff. We're getting into Castro. We're getting into the revolution. So don't miss that because once again, he's on fire. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.